It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Daniel Storey of Football 365 and Tom Hopkinson of the Sunday Mirror. Now, let's be honest. Cynicism is our default position with England. Too many disappointments, too few reasons to believe. But maybe, just maybe, things are different in this World Cup. There's a lot to like in this England team. They're imperfect, but impressive. This isn't the time for nitpicking and negativity. Agree, Daniel? I do agree, yeah. I think um, the victory over Tunisia was hard-fought and hard-earned, but England were far better than their opponents. We've seen time and time again, even in the first round of these matches in the World Cup, that bigger teams are going to face defensive, dour, weaker nations, and they're going to make it very hard for them to score goals. Argentina found that against Iceland, France found that against Australia, and... Um, and England had eight shots, Tunisia's one. And the thing I really liked about, about England is that they only four of their 18 shots were from outside the box. And I think England teams in tournaments past would have got desperate very quickly and shot from anywhere and gone for the you know gone for that golden goal rather than sticking to their methods, sticking to what they've been told works and what they know works. And and eventually it paid. Mm. We've been around England teams, Tom, where it has been, you know, quite frankly, a sour atmosphere. How important is it, this sort of reconnection that's going on between England and the, t and the media, but also the fans? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it is important, uh, but I don't, I don't think we should place too much importance on it because things can change very quickly. You know, yeah. if, if uh, things hadn't gone as they did, if Harry Kane hadn't scored so, so late on last night, then I think the, the narrative uh, in, in the media over uh, the next couple of days would have been very different to the one it is. You know, I think uh, I, I agree uh, with Dan. We played well. I mean, we particularly looked good in the first half. But then after that, there, there were, as you said, you know, there was there is uh, we, we're still far from perfect and, and there were one or two flaws and it's only right that the media are able to to uh, constructively criticize those mm. those flaws and I think you know I think one or two of the pieces have this morning I think uh, Deli Ali was pretty obvious he didn't have uh, the greatest game he didn't he struggle to get into it a little bit Raheem Sterling as well full of endeavor and effort but uh, things didn't always work for him and it's important that we don't become too close to the players that we can't make uh, make those points but I think 
the fact that they've clearly gone. I mean, when we think back to the the last World Cup, and we had this situation where there was the darts tournament going on, and I think I'm right in saying mm-hmm. it was Gary Neville had told the players not to tell anyone who was winning uh, the darts tournament, and Joe Hart was adamant that he wouldn't do it. And then, then you see at this tournament, you know, you hear of, of Gary Cale playing darts against Charlie Sale. I mean, it's quite a matchup uh, <laughs> if, you, if you've ever met both characters. And 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 I think that's lovely because when you look at the way the the Panamanians have been. Uh, and the Mexican fans have been, and in, in Peruvians as well. It is a party, and and I think sometimes we can all get weighed down in this idea that you've got to go to the World Cup, you've got to win it, and all this pressure's on. And yet the, those nations, they're not going there with those expectations, and they're having real fun. And I think there is an element of that has crept back into the England setup this time, which will ultimately help the players as well. Mm. So there's a pause for enjoyment, and let's just rediscover why we fell in love with the game in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there are a number of England fans who have become apathetic with this England team. As you said, many times bitten, many more times shy because they, are, they were sick of feeling that the England team did not A, represent them, that they B, had no affinity with that team and that C, they were playing well below their potential. Um, but this is a World Cup. If you can't get excited about a World Cup, even if you don't think England are going to win it, then, then what's the point of it all? Because these, these are the tournaments that we fell in love with football for. Um, and it does feel now, um, to me and I think to many others, that this England team represents what we want. They're likeable, they're hungry, they want to play the right way. They realise, as, as Gareth Southgate says, that if you're not going to win a tournament, you might as well make as many friends as you can, both at home and across the world. And, yeah, I think they're doing that, and I think they will do that. Mm. Is there an element you know, of actually using this tournament as a bit of a free run? Because this team or this group are going to be judged in 2022 rather than now. Yeah, well, that's what Greg Dyke wanted, wasn't it, with his famous <laughs> clock at uh, St yeah. George's Still clock. ticking it's away. Still <laughs> ticking away. I, I, I don't think they will be using this as a dry run. I think if you... They're all professional footballers. They all... Uh, play for the best clubs mm. or most of them play for the best clubs in the country they start every season wanting to win trophies and they're not just going to go to or they, they didn't just go to Russia thinking we're here to make up the numbers I, I think I don't think they will I think they'll be happy with quarterfinals semi-finals I think they'd come home and say look we can hold our heads high but I think after last night's result they will be saying look next couple of days let's let's get on it and if we can get some more positivity from Panama then we build we build the momentum we grow into a tournament like the Germans are so famous for doing and and let's see how far we can go but I, yeah I, I don't think they'll go with the mindset that we're building for the future I, I think it's very much for the here and now but I, I do slightly disagree with what, what Dan said about the the fact that it isn't just a party because I think I think when you look at the as I say the, the Latin American fans who are having such a great time um, I was speaking to a mate of mine yesterday and he said look that's the essence of the World Cup with the fans mixing with the locals and showing them something that, that maybe they've never seen before and I, I think perhaps people can just go to a tournament and say let's enjoy it I think, I think the main problem with England in recent years has been the fact that we've actually disgraced ourselves you know we've been that poor and whereas if I think you go and you, you just play you know you play alright you play as well as you can and you try as hard as you can then I think people will accept that mm. Obviously, you know, huge amount of interest. You know, that game last night, 21 million viewers. Um, so there is room, I think, as Tom said, for constructive criticism. Mm. But we live in a scapegoat culture. Mm. You know, I'm particularly worried about the reaction to Raheem Sterling. You know, he's an, he's, he's an easy target at the moment. Yeah. 
How important is it that we have some perspective in the consideration of his performances and as the group as a whole? Yeah, it's hugely important, um, both for, for him personally and for the team, because if you hear other members of that England squad talk, they are incredibly protective of Raheem Sterling, and that's, that's for a reason, given what's happened over the last month. Um, there is a danger, um, there's a very thin line between constructive criticism um, and over-the-top criticism, and, and, and actually... Let's be honest, he didn't play well, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't play well, and he was the first man substitute, came off after 68 minutes. I, I always think with Raheem Sterling um, that the, his first big action of the match tends to define what happens then often. And he missed the chance, albeit it was, you know, Jesse Lingard had already been flagged offside, but he missed the chance after four or five minutes. And that sent team to set the tone for the rest of the game. Um, and he also doesn't play the same role as he does for Manchester City because Harry Kane is so dominant as a central striker that Sterling doesn't get into the six-yard box as much as he does for City. Mm. Um, I don't think he will start the next game, I have to say. Um, I don't agree with... There's been a few calls that X, Y and Z should be dropped for the next game. You know, we won and that was Gareth Southgate's mm. starting team. So he's not going to make wholesale changes. But I do wonder if either Marcus Rashford comes in for Sterling or if... And per my personal view, but maybe to put Deli Ali further forward and bring him room and loft his cheek because I thought he changed the game. Mm. I would, I would leave Sterling in. I would actually. Yeah, I mean, that's that's clearly Gareth Southgate's preferred starting eleven. And we're playing Panama, and we we saw against Belgium that they're not the strongest side. So leave them in, and and maybe let Raheem Sterling didn't play well, as you say, but he didn't play badly either. Yeah. And and maybe it's only going to take one going in off his shin or or a mm. couple of good crosses against a weaker side, and all of a sudden he's got that momentum with him. Now Marcus Rashford, as who's always looked good with England, perhaps doesn't need that extra little boost of confidence that they're going to mm. get or. We hope they're going to get from playing against. Panama. But there's, I'm trying to try and include as we go along a few of the, the questions from the viewers and listeners. There's a very pertinent one here from uh, Russ Merlis. Do you think Sterling fits the support striker role? Yes, I, I do. I, I think I think he's been so impressive for Manchester City this season um, that I think we just have to stick with him. You know, we're we're so quick. You, you, we've used the word scapegoats. You know, we're so quick to drop someone if they're not performing. But I always, I always like to use the West Indies cricket analogy from about 20 years ago when you're talking about young players coming through. And he is still a young player, but 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 what they did was they, they said, right, you boys are the 11 now. We, we, we've got faith in you. And if you go out and you get a few ducks or you don't take any wickets, don't worry, just keep working, keep trying, and you're still in the side. And I think that's what we've got to do with Raheem Sterling because we saw how he reacted after, you know, let's face it, last summer, a lot of us thought that he was on his way to Arsenal or at least unwanted by Pep Guardiola. Mm. And yet he responded with, with a very, very good season. Yes, he needs to score more goals because he gets into the positions. Yes, his final ball does need improving, but by taking him out and not giving him the chance to keep progressing, he's not going to improve. No. Mm. So let's stick with him. Let's leave him there. The other thing about, you know, Marcus Rashford came on and did pretty well. I think Ruben Loftus-Cheek came on and did very well, but they were coming on against a tired defence. It's, it's, e it's a lot easier to yeah. come on with a lack of pressure at that point. Um, yes, the team needs a, a lot goal. of energy with the midges as well, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Raheem. But that's what I mean. If you come on as a substitute... It, 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 to me, it feels like Raheem Sterling is, is constantly now having to prove the doubt is wrong. He's almost having to do more than, than other players will yeah. just, to, just to stay afloat, which is a huge shame. I hope if he plays well against Panama, you know, he's only had 68 minutes of tournament football. There's a heck of a long way left. Yeah, absolutely mm. right. Uh, Mike from Keithley. Uh, which of the attacking midfield players, Ali, if fit, Sterling, Lingard et al, is most vulnerable for the next two group games? It's a good question. Um, 
I don't know if any of them are, are, are particularly vulnerable because, as we've said, it is it's clear that they're uh, Gareth Southgate's preferred uh, front four, if you like, with Harry Kane. Uh, he was very complimentary of them uh, after the Nigeria friendly. He, he particularly, you know, that was the the department, the area of the field that he he, he singled out for real praise. And um, I, I think I think he'll stick with that again because I think he really believes in them and he, he likes the way they they dovetail. Um, what I would what I would actually like to see is perhaps if it's not working. Um, then let's bring the substitutes on a bit earlier. Rather than changing it from the start, mm. let's have the confidence to give Ruben Loftus-Cheek more than eight or nine minutes at mm. the end of the game. Let's say, right, Marcus, you've got 35, you've got almost 40 minutes if if uh, Jesse Lingard or Raheem Sterling or whoever's not quite performing to his level. Even Jamie Vardy, you know, go and, go and have 30 to 40 minutes. We'll give you five minutes in the second half those starters to see if you hit the ground running and if you don't then you're coming off we're changing the sh uh, the shape changing the system and let's have a crack at that I think mm. the only the only possible change I can see and it's not for the Panama game is Southgate's con continuously talked up this we will play attacking we will take on the tournament we're not here to you know to for, we're not going to go home thinking about what might have been. Um, but I do wonder if against Belgium he might pick an extra central midfielder. I think you're absolutely right with that. I think, yeah, I think, I think he'll play Dyer and Henderson in that. I just think it, it worries me with, with, with wing-backs against Hazard and De Bruyne. If De Bruyne plays higher up than he did against Panama, because I think he was too deep against mm. Panama. But if he plays higher up, then I think there is a danger that Henderson gets slightly over-swapped. What about playing three at the back? Is that strictly necessary against, let's face it, a really limited team like... Uh, Panama. Uh, I, look, Gareth Southgate has, has created a three at the back formation ostensibly because he he, he had two of the best <coughs> wing backs in European football in Danny Rose and Kyle Walker. Actually, neither of them started <laughs> in that position last night. Um, but I don't think he's in the business of completely changing the system for an opponent. That would be incredibly brave. And there are there are managers who will do that. And there are braver managers than him. Honestly, believe that, but I don't see that that's necessarily a negative on his part. I think he will have faith that what he will, what he might say is three defenders in total are enough, and therefore the, those two wing backs. Actually, you can basically play as midfielders. Mm. So rather than playing five at the back, a five-three-two, we're basically playing. Can I have a th three-seven? Three, yeah, <laughs> well, basically, yeah, because there's just Henderson sat in front of them, and and you know at times last night, Kieran Trippier created six chances against yeah. against. Uh, Tunisia and only I think the last England player to create more than that in a game was David Beckham so even even as a right wing back he's a clearly a very attacking player so I don't think three at the back has to be translated into a defensive formation. I, I know people think that, that they look at the shape of and, and the system <clears> that Gareth Southgate plays and think it's to accommodate all those attacking players but I actually think it's, it's as Dan says as much to accommodate the fact that we've got in Kieran Trippier one of the best uh, crosses of the ball in the game at the moment you know and particularly the, the way he crosses the ball on the move I, he's got it down to a, an absolute mm. fine mm. art and and I, you know I think that's why I think that that width that extra width he gives us and the chance the chances he creates for Harry Kane uh, and as we saw in the the friendlies against Nigeria and Costa Rica you know that that those chances they will st if he keeps creating them and yeah. the players keep getting into position they will start going in more yeah we, re we really sort of almost overlook how inexperienced Someone like Trippier is mm. at international level. You know, eight caps or something like that. That team that played against Tunisia had a total of 248 caps. We're led to believe that inexperience can be costly and is actually sometimes it works against you. Mm. Let's look at the other side of that coin. Is that inexperience, does that actually produce 
freshness mm. and sort of unbridled ambition. I honestly believe it does. And I also think experience is a, is a double-edged sword because you can be as experienced as you like, but if you're an England player aged between 25 and 40, um, then the only experience you have in major tournament football is, is eventual disappointment. And there's an argument to say that experience of failure is no experience at all or no useful experience at all. Um, Southgate certainly believes that way. He, he had an option last night. The easy option, I think, would have been to pick Gary Cahill at central, in central defence. The easy option would have been to take Joe Hart with, you know, 60-odd caps. Um, in choosing to go for the 25-year-old Harry Maguire, who was an England fan at Euro 2016... He's also a left-back for most of exactly, last night. Exactly, yeah. But to, do, but to do that, to pick him over the experienced option, shows a courage that I think when Southgate got the job, we feared he may be a, a bit of a yes-man for those places for the boys. Actually, the opposite's true. He certainly believes that, that inexperience equals freshness and freshness equals this new optimism we seem to have found. And we might be talking about World Cup experience and international experience but these boys, uh, or inexperience, but these boys, are, you know, they're playing Champions League football against better, let's face it, better players than Tunisia were able to put up against us, than Panama will be able to put up against us. So it's not like we're throwing them in, you know, without anything. I, and I actually, I actually think uh, the one thing he might change for the Belgium game, uh, well, the, the two, I think he will go with two holding midfielders for that game, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Gary Cahill come in for Maguire in that game and probably a little bit more defensive solidity with Cahill than Maguire's sort of get the ball and that want to move up mm -hmm. into midfield. Um, Johnny Reid asked the question, um, can we play a left-back who uses his left foot, please? <laughs> Cutting inside constantly narrows the play. I suppose the, you know, the context of that is that England didn't have a left-footed player at all in that starting eleven. No, and, and, and as I say, Southgate created this three men at the back to use these two wing-backs mm. and, and one of them isn't in the team. Um, but I take the point, but the one thing I would say about Ashley Young last night is his set-piece delivery was excellent and Kieran Trippier's set-piece delivery <laughs> was also excellent. Um, so in having those two in the team, the odd thing about this England team with the attacking players it has is that actually there's not a set-piece taker, a normal club set-piece taker in there. Fair enough, Deli Ali could probably do the job, but he hasn't been for, for Tottenham and he hasn't been for, for England. So actually playing Young and Trippier over Rose and Walker with another centre-back actually means we do have two set-piece takers. Mm. Um, I don't think Young was brilliant last night, but it kind of wasn't his game. He is... He is emphatically the most defensive of the two wing backs, and and if that gives license for him to stay back a little bit and Trippier to bomb on, then then it works for me. Mm. Interesting about you know, character, a very underrated thing in football. If you look at Ashley Young and also Jordan Henderson, mm. they've all had to deal with sort of mini crises in their career. They've all had to sort of show the required resilience. How important is that? And you know, are we seeing some of that in the World Cup? Yeah, I mean, look, look, character is, you're, you're absolutely right, it is, you know, it, we should never underestimate it because the, the, there are times, like in last night's game, when it would have been easy for uh, the players to, to really just get so frustrated with the fact that, A, they couldn't break Tunisia down in that second half, B, three refereeing decisions had arguably gone against England um, and, and yet they, they had the resolve to keep going and, until the very end. I mean, I was, I was tearing my hair out at one point when Harry Maguire went forward and he he's found himself just to the left edge of the box and he didn't even look up to put this crossover and you're thinking, you're thinking to yourself, no, come on, I know you're a centre, central defender but you, you're a professional footballer as well You know, and you're a good passer of the ball so, so you know, let's get that right. 
and then but they keep going and and that character that Maguire showed at the end to win the header and set up Harry Kane I, I thought was was fantastic it, it is it is so key when in games like that when it's when the frustration levels are are building and building I think the 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 big lingering question it won't be able to be answered until we get to a later stage is how this England team deals with adversity because yeah. that was the problem against Iceland it wasn't that um that England didn't couldn't score because they scored after three minutes. Um, it was that as soon as they went behind, everyone lost their head and the panic sets in and the yeah. fear sets in. But they didn't show that rabbits in the headlight syndrome in the second half, did they? Against Tunisia, they just no. you know believed in the system, believed in yeah. the plan, and kept going. And they, they didn't resort. There was some I can't remember. It was someone was telling me a manager was telling me <clears> the other day that the the you you. The first thing you do when you're under pressure is revert to old habits, bad habits mm. often. Mm. And with England, that was always smacking long balls yep. forward, searching for a big target man and just lumping it into the area. But they didn't do that last night. And I think I think Gareth Southgate has to take a lot of credit for that, for saying, look, you know, you've got my mm. backing, you've got my blessing just to keep playing the football that we set up to play. But the players also need credit for it as well, for, for keep going and sticking at it. Yeah, they can see those headlines on... Tuesday morning if they draw that game and so to, to stick with that rather than pushing and pushing and, and you know trying too hard yeah as you say is, is really commendable mm. and with the frustrations I, I mean they, they must have been absolutely livid at the two refereeing decisions which yeah. we've not mentioned yet but to, to be wrestled to the ground and not get a penalty with you know look I understand a referee misses incidents mm. like that when you've got all sorts going on in the box you, you need eyes in the back of your head for one man to do it but the, the the chaps in the full kit uh, <laughs> who, who are supposed to be picking up on these things, who've got video technology, how on earth are they missing that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that begs the question, doesn't it? Um, there were a couple of questions from, from the, the viewers and the listeners on this. Now, yeah, my view very much is that I don't like VAR. I think it takes something of the spontaneity of the game away. But I think we've got to accept the inevitable. It's here and we've got to make the most of it. The problem is what we're doing is we're experimenting with mm. this at the highest possible level, which I think is wrong. So a couple of questions. Uh, first from uh, James Mulrennan. When will the football public come to understand that VAR does not mean a total end to debatable decisions, just a reduction in clear and obvious errors? And to follow that up, Simon Walker asks, VAR, is it to review decisions made or just decisions missed? It's both, it seems now. Um, I actually wasn't aware going into this tournament, and I am now, that they would be basically watching the whole game at the time and constantly talking to the referee. I thought it would just revolve around these contentious incidents and decisions given maybe rather than not given. Um, <laughs> to my mind, the fault... Last, I mean, in the England game, the penalty's not given. The fault did not lie in the technology. The, the fault lay in the, you know, the interpretation of, of the technology. Mm. Um, we could see within 15 seconds that Harry Kane had been wrestled to the ground. And, and I do believe it was a penalty on, on Kyle Walker. I think it was soft, but I think it was pretty dim of him to do, you know, to flail his arm as he did. But if you are going to give that decision and you are going to bring in a, um, a technological assistance, you have to be aiming for better, better consistency mm. than a referee can give you. And that didn't happen. That didn't happen. The, the first element of, of that question was, was that it's, it's meant to reduce the number of debatable uh, positions or mm. things, elements that come up. It didn't. 
you know, it, it, it didn't even reduce it. It changes they, the debate, doesn't they it? They were yeah. two absolutely obvious calls that, mm. that were there to be made and it didn't get it right. And that that is the point of VAR, that it's there. If something is obvious but it's been missed, it's there to straighten that out. And, and it, it didn't. It, it failed. It frankly failed last night. This, this, I think, and I'm not just talking from an English perspective because I was watching the game more intently, but... This actually felt like the first time that it had failed in this World Cup. I, it has actually, I don't agree with it as a concept, but it had actually pleasantly surprised me in the first four or five days. You know, the, the Griezmann penalty I thought was right, the, the one given to Sweden in the South Korea game I thought was right, and they were overturned correctly, mm. and the right decision was made. This was the first time where I think there was a, a howler even with VAR, and you might say typically it happened to England, but... If it happens in the Tunisia game, we go on to win it, we can accept that. Yeah. If it happens in the semi-finals or final to, to England or otherwise, that's going to be a huge talk. Well, that will define the tournament. It will, then, yeah, won't it? it will. Um, Harry Kane, though, this score is two goals, despite being wrestled to the ground on a fairly regular basis. Uh, scored in the last uh, seven out of the last eight internationals, which is Jimmy Greaves' territory. Yeah, every game as captain as well, he scored. Amazing. Amazing. Now, if he doesn't score... Who else does? <laughs> that is a very good question. Um, at the moment, it doesn't matter because he's, he's going to score every time he, he takes the field. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that is the, the one the one concern we've got. We know Deli Ali can score goals. We know Raheem Sterling can mm. score goals, but they don't do it with the sort of consistency which, which we need them to at club level. I don't think which their clubs need them to at club level. They certainly don't do it with the sort of consistency... Mm. Uh, international level and that that I think is something that Gareth Southgate will will have to address because you know Jamie Vardy's sitting there on on the bench a man we know can score mm -hmm. goals will score goals for fun if he gets a chance uh, particularly against teams like Panama you know I mean that 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 game is almost crying out for for two centre forwards and you know again it, it could be an option, even though I, I think Gareth should, as I say, I think he should stick with what he's got, but it, it could be an option because the confidence that that would give Vardy for when he's required off the bench uh, in later games as well, it, it could play into England's favour. This, this poor finishing is nothing new under Gareth Southgate for England. He must well, be we got a finishing coach. Yeah. So the best. They, so they've <laughs> had, they basically, they, so England have taken 99 shots in the last nine games and scored 10 goals. And that conversion rate would basically, I think, put them bottom in the Premier League. So it is an issue. Um, but, I mean, I made, I, I criticised it last night. But actually, I also think if you are going to accept that well, this is a young, hungry team that's full of imperfections but adventurous, likeable players, we also have to, at some point, except that they are going to be flawed and yeah. there are going to be, you know, that young players are going to get blinded light by the lights when they go through on goal like Jesse Lingard yeah. did. And it's not like he's not scored no. goals in big games, Lingard, as well, and, and, you know, taken them very yeah. well. So we know he can do it. it mm. It's there. It's just about unlocking it at, at the level and on this stage. There's also the, 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 you know, the old striker cliche of you're better to be ch creating chances yeah. and missing them than not creating them at all. And Ooh. As long as England go on creating 12, 13, 14, we had 18 shots uh, against Tunisia, the goals will come. We have to believe that those goals will come. We hope. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yes. You know, it's not been a, a, a pressing World Cup, has it? But, you know, I thought that was very marked in the early stages, certainly first half with England, where they did press, you know, the movement was good and sharp. Um, have England got the reserves of energy to do that consistently over a tournament where you have to be building through it? I, I honestly don't, don't think they have. Um, they were brilliant in the first 20 minutes 
against Tunisia. I think it was arguably the best 20 minutes we've seen of any team in the tournament. Or even smiling, which I love. <laughs> yeah, but they were they were getting in behind. There were runs. There was two or three men wanting the ball every time someone got them. There were two or three men also hassling every Tunisian player. It was excellent football. Um, my worry comes when they come against a team who will immediately exploit when that press stops. And I'm thinking the obvious example is Spain. Um, if they can, if England, as they play as they did in the second half against Spain and are a bit more passive and, and that's due to fatigue and also a little lack of belief, um, then they will come unstuck. But if we're talking about England coming unstuck against Spain in tournament football, something's probably gone all right. Yeah. I'm going to go a bit John Kelly here, though. And, you know, the, the weather last night was, it was very humid. Yeah. Um, and what well, they're talking, sort of late 20s, maybe even touching 30 at times down at pitch level. Mm. And, and I think comparatively with a lot of other areas of Russia where the games have been played, that was a lot warmer. And, and, I, and there was something on the commentary when uh, someone said it's, it's exactly the same for the Tunisian players as it is for the England players. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, I'm sure they're a bit used to playing, <laughs> a bit more used to playing in uh, this sort of humidity than we are. But, you know, I, I think we need to give them a bit of credit for that. And, and the fact that they are so young, I think, you know, it gives those bodies a little bit, you know, they'll, they'll heal quicker, uh, that they will be ready to go every time the games come around. Yeah, I think we, we all agree that... that Panama is, you know, you never get a gimme in a World Cup game, but, you know, probably with Saudi Arabia, Panama are the worst team out there. Um, Tom, you've been uh, out to see um, Roberto Martinez yeah. and, the, and the Belgian squad. What was your impression of them? Um, you know, what's the mood like? Because he's obviously come under a lot of criticism for his system, his personnel. Yeah. Um, How's he dealing with it? Well, he's, he's dealing with it well. I mean, he's, he's a very calm character. He's very generous with his time when I went out to see him. I had a, an hour with him at the training base uh, the weekend before, or, or the Friday before he announced his team uh, or his squad on the Monday. And, of course, uh, he had the Nangalan Ferrari to deal with afterwards. Um, but I... I, I think he's, he knows the position uh, he's in in terms of the pressure that he's under because this is Belgium's golden generation. Uh, he's dealing with some very big characters, some excellent players. And I think there's almost a fear, not from him, but, but from one or two people look at it and say, maybe he's got too many great players in that side, you know, and, and not enough... Uh, workhorses to do the, the the real heavy work when when they need to do it, but um, I, I I think the type of football that Roberto Martinez likes to play, I think he's very well suited to uh, to the players he's got. I just think there need to be tweaks in the formation. As Dan said earlier, you want to see Kevin De Bruyne given a little bit more licence and, and pushed further forward. Uh, Axel Witzel has come in for a bit of criticism, hasn't he, for his mm. performance, maybe playing a little bit too deep and uh, didn't deal well enough with the ball. But I think I think with Thierry Henry uh, and his other coaches, you know, I think Martinez has got this. He, he, he's, he's very much from the sort of the Guardiola philosophy of, of football. Johan Cruyff, he's, he's talked about a lot being the, the sort of uh, mentors, if you like, you know, the people whose philosophies he's taken and uh, even John Toshak, people like that. So I, I think he, he knows exactly what he wants to get from these these Belgian players. And, and I think I, I don't think we should pan them for the performance, uh, frankly, against Panama, because as, as English fans, we know how difficult it can be to break down sides that you, you're going into game with huge expectations uh, and expected to blow them away. And I, I think most England players would take the result uh, that Belgium got against Panama. We'll, we'll be quite happy to walk away with that. Mm, it was interesting, you know, you mentioned Thierry Henry, uh, as did uh, Romelu Lukaku mm. in, a, in a, you know, a brilliant piece interview, uh, yeah. for, for the Players' Tribune. Um, I must admit, 
when I see a, a famous player turning up as a number two or as part of a coaching team, you wonder whether that's for show to a degree. Is Henri, do you think, in the process of proving that he could be a really, really good coach and a big influence? Yeah, as you say, Lukaku certainly talks him up. And um, as far as Roberto Martin is concerned, if Romelu Lukaku is happy with Thierry Henry, then so should he be, because he is by far and away their first-choice central striker. They had Christian Benteke at the last major tournament, who is... You know, it's fallen away so much since then that it is Lukaku and nobody else. There's a, an, a wonderful array of attacking midfielders behind him, but it's Lukaku's responsibility to score the goals. Um, he's a very different player to Thierry Henry, so I suspect most of what Henry is offering is, is the kind of mental side of the game, because if there's one accusation against Lukaku, it's that he can kind of drift out of games and that he can, um, almost like Raheem Sterling, let a mischance or let criticism get to him. Um, and Henri was one of the, you know, was one of the calmest, coolest strikers we, have, we ever saw play. Um, but he started excellently yesterday again, completely starved of service in the first half, as he has been at Manchester United. But again, as he has at Manchester United, as soon as they actually start playing the way that fits his style, he scores two goals. And, and the second one was a, a beautiful finish. Martinez was adamant that Henri is ready for management now. Right. Where would, you, where would you see him fitting in, Tom? Uh, is it too soon to go into the Premier League? No, I don't. I don't think it is. I, I, but but not because of his experience as a manager. I think it, as a as a player, he, the 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 way he was as the player, the the people he's worked with in the game. I think he could command the respect of any dressing room he, he walked into. I mean, look, I am a massive advocate that that you go and learn your trade in the lower leagues and and then work your way up. But I, I think the feeling was with Henri that because of his personality and because he was he's been there and done it as a player. You know, the international honours he's won, the honours he's won with clubs in different countries, you know, mm. he, he he could get the best out of players and, and uh, as Dan said, you know, using the mental side and that personality side, he'd, he'd be perfect for any side, I think. Did Arsenal miss a trick? Uh, no, I don't think they did. I, 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 and I, I, because I think if we look at Manchester United as the example, it takes a couple of years, three years, four years to get things right after someone's been there for so long. And I, I think whilst he he would have actually commanded the respect that I've just talked about at Arsenal more than anywhere else in the Premier League. I think for him, it was probably too soon. Uh, I think he probably needs to go away and whether it's work with a team in, in Spain or whether it's work with a team in Germany, France, wherever, and just have two or three years just learning about when to make the right substitutions and, and uh, dealing with the sort of problems that managers have to deal with that we don't get to hear about, which you know I'm sure are numerous. Uh, and then he comes back to Arsenal and I think ultimately he will make for a very good Arsenal manager. Mm. I suppose the fact that we're actually talking about club issues you know, <laughs> tells us how important they are and how all-pervasive they are. Um, in that sense, uh, Dan, you, you, we've looked at um, Eden Hazard. It wasn't quite the traditional come-and-get-me plea, but it was certainly Real Madrid, yes, please. Mm. Uh, that sort of stuff during a World Cup, how distracting do you think that could be? It was a... And a kind of extraordinary quote, speaking to Lequeep, um, and he said, I, he started by saying, I don't want to talk about my future, you know that, as if he was put out that he'd been even been asked about it and then proceeded to do <laughs> but. exactly that. <laughs> um, I, th I actually sympathise with, with Hazard to an extent. He, at Chelsea, he, he's basically been lauded, he's gone through these peaks and troughs where he is lauded by supporters and non-Chelsea supporters alike for, for dragging the team on and two league 
to two league titles and then very quickly is made to be the scapegoat when things go wrong. And, and I see why that happens. He's, he's almost Mesut Ozil-like in that he can quite quickly look when the team's not doing well like he doesn't give 100%. And I, I don't think that's true with Eden Hazard whatsoever. Um, so I can kind of understand that given the complete overhaul and lack of progression at Chelsea this summer, particularly with Roman Abramovich's um, visa issues and you know threatening to pull funding out of the club, etc., I can see why he wants to move. Um, He's not 22-23 anymore, Hazard. And I think when he moved from, from Lille to Chelsea, if he'd have been told that he would win a Player of the Year in the Premier League, if he would win two league titles in the Premier League, if he would become one of the attacking players in one of the best leagues in the world, I think he would probably think that there would be clubs knocking on the door for him more than they are. And the example I would use is Coutinho at Barcelona. Hazard might think, well, hang on a minute, I know he's playing at Liverpool and they're a, they're a more higher-profile club, but... I've done more than Coutinho's done over the last three years. And so where's my £160 million bid? So I can sympathise with him, but yeah, there are time and places to make these come and get me, please. And, and that's what it was. Mm. This wasn't it. We're now entering you know, the pressurised phase of this, you know, the group stages anyway. Some pressure games, uh, none more so than, than Germany. They can't afford any slip-up against Sweden, can they? No, I... Um... You talk to any coach and any manager who has, has been to a World Cup. Uh, I was with Svenja and Eriksson last week and he was talking about the just how vital it is to not lose that first game. Uh, Argentina and Brazil, at least they've got a point on the board and you know four points usually does it, so you, the pressure isn't on. But if you lose that first game, the pressure going into the second game is, is absolutely immense. Now, I still think Germany have got the personnel, the manager, uh, everything going for them and I, I still think we'll see them in, in the, the knockout phase and I've got absolutely no fears for them about that but undeniably they've put themselves under a lot of pressure. Mm. Any echoes of Spain in 2014? Not to that cataclysmic extent in terms of the, the heaviness of the defeat although they're playing a, a weaker opponent um, but there, there are clear problems there. Um, I agree that I think they will make the knockout stages but it was interesting to hear Mats Hummels after the game talk about him being left exposed. And he also said, I've been telling people internally this for a long time. So this is clearly uh, an issue that we might be seeing for one of the first times, but some of the players in the squad aren't. Um, they, they, it was a very strange, very naive um, managerial performance from Joachim Löw, I thought, because he generally struggled first half. Sami Kadira got overrun. He doesn't have the mobility he did and Mexico <laughs> attacked at will. But his... his his reaction was almost childlike. It was just to throw more and more attackers on and push players higher and higher at the pitch to say, well, we're Germany, we're going to have to score. And we've seen in this World Cup that teams will not, Saudi Arabia aside, teams will not roll over and let you tickle their belly. And um, Germany almost expected them to win because of who they were, not how they played. And um, they've, got a, they've got a huge awakening there. So I suspect that they will go out and do a very professional job on a Sweden side who are efficient, but not much else. Mm. Um, and I certainly think they'll beat South Korea, so they go through. But it was interesting. It was very uh, un-Germanic, to be very stereotypical, to see such a, a high-profile um, footballer, Mats Hummels, come out and speak out against the team. And, and they also cancelled their media day the next day. So there's clearly something going oh, on the there. good old they days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not just England. It's the S-word, wasn't it? The S-word summed up uh, Germany's performance greatly. Sane, you know, they, they, they were the one, he was the player that, that that game was crying out for.
Yeah. Is ex exactly with Rajan Nangalan. Whether or not it made a difference to the, squ to the squad and to that game, it has made an issue in it's itself. The narrative now, hasn't it? And it has, and it has. And, and in Germany, they are a little bit more understanding of why he wasn't picked than we are in England, having watched Sani. But even so, um, it becomes a very easy stick to beat a coach with. So when it doesn't work, he's going to nothing, nothing we like more than <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. an easy stick to pick up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose what this does open up that defeat is is the possibility that they'll have to face Brazil in the in the yeah. next round. Yeah, that, awful game that'll be. Oh, <laughs> terrible. Uh, what's your view of Brazil so far? Um, I, I think it'd be very easy to to pick fault with a one-one draw against Switzerland. Um, but like England, you know, they started very well uh, and then faced a side who actually came out in the second half and raised their own performance levels uh, and were perhaps unlucky with the the goal they conceded. And and just you know, where where England got a little bit fortunate with the the fact that we managed to score in stoppage time, it just didn't quite happen for for the Brazilians. Um, but again, you, you look down the, that Swiss side and the names in it, you know, this is a good football team. This is a, a team that is full of very strong players defensively. They've got creative likes with Shakiri in there as well. So I, I think for a first game, I, I don't think anyone in Brazil will be unduly worried by that. I think it's, look, it's the point on the board the confidence levels, let's just build the momentum up, the confidence levels will be back. So I, I, I don't expect them to have any problems at mm. all. What about Neymar? Celebrity or footballer? Uh, both, <laughs> I think, and I think he would probably welcome both descriptions. Um, he, he He's clearly Brazil's best technical player in terms of skills. I, I honestly believe that. And he's had, he's had a phenomenal start to his international career. And it is only a start, he's still only 25. Um, but there were occasions against Switzerland where he was not trying to do everything in a Lionel Messi sense, I have to do everything because no one else will, mm. but he was trying to do everything because it felt like he was trying to do everything because he, he believes it is his destiny to lead this Brazil team to a, a World Cup win. And he might well be good enough to do that, but if he isn't, he has to be big enough to accept that he has better players around him than Lionel Messi has at Argentina. He has Philip Coutinho. He has Gabriel Jesus. Um, he has Willian. And they have great options on the bench as well. So there, there is, there's clearly a danger, and it is the biggest danger of this Brazil team, that they turn themselves into a one-man team when they're actually far better than that. Um, and that this hype, this Neymar celebrity makes that more of a risk. I think Coutinho scoring, and particularly scoring the goal he did score, was the best thing that could have happened for Neymar because it just takes that little mm. bit of, you know, look, he'll thrive on pressure. He's a, he wants to be the main man. He wants to be in the spotlight, but it doesn't hurt from time to time for someone else to step up to the plate and, as Coutinho did mm. and, and help him out. But I just thought, listening to Roy Keane purring, when have you ever heard Roy Keane purr <laughs> about a player? And as Neymar stood in the, the tunnel waiting to come out and he's, he's telling the nation that's what a footballer looks like, you, you, know, you know you're dealing with something special then. Mm. Let's talk a bit about one-man teams, if we can. Um, let's start with Argentina and Lionel Messi. Um, they've got Croatia. Now, Croatia have their problems, you know, Kalinic being mm. sent home like a naughty boy. Um, is that a potential stress point for them? 
uh, what you, the, the Croatia yeah. or for Argentina for, uh, for Argentina for that Messi Croatia game. Um, yeah, I mean, look again. We we love the, this phrase, the golden generation, don't we? And, and Croatia, even without Kalinic, have got some great players. Uh, you know, Modric, Mandzukic, uh, Rakitic. They're they're coming to to some you know the prime years of their careers. And uh, at Lo Lovren at the back. You know, this is a defender who has been much maligned uh, in the Premier League, but I think he's had. Arguably his best season, uh, you know, has played Champions League uh, all the way through. So, so they are a, a tough test. And actually, Croatia are probably a better group of players than Argentina in terms of uh, their, their ability-wise. But when you have this one special talent uh, like Messi, I know uh, in Argentina there's always been this thought that he's never done it for the uh, for the national team as he has done for for Barcelona, but. He single-handedly got them to the World Cup in, in the, the last game, mm. didn't he? he? He was the man who made sure they qualified. So you, you're always going to have that in reserve if, if things are going badly. You know, you always have got that moment that Messi might go, as, as Dan just said about Neymar, right, that's it, I'll, I'll sort this out. Mm. So it is going to be a very tough game. And I actually think it, it has got the potential to be, uh, I mean, we've, we've all talked about how good the Spain-Portugal game was. I think it's got a potential to be the best group game alongside that one because I think they're two very, very good teams who are actually quite well matched. Mm. Do you think Argentina are vulnerable? There's always one big team that has a mm. major crisis, isn't there? Um, if it is a crisis, it's, it's, it's been brewing for a long time because Tom's right, Messi did single-handedly get them to the World Cup and, um, and if he doesn't single-handedly take them through, then there's certainly a feeling in Argentina that there's not a queue of people behind him waiting to do the same. Uh, Angel Di Maria is flattered to deceive for Argentina. Um, their striker issue where basically Messi prefers to play with Higuain, but Higuain hasn't scored an international goal in two years and... There's a feeling he doesn't really work well with Aguero and, and that looked to be the case against Iceland. They were far too easy to defend. But there's no-one else demanding the ball and it, 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 the easy option is always to give it to Messi and hope he does something because the, the spotlight is so firmly on him. Um, and obviously, he missed a penalty in the first game, so deservedly the spotlight was on him afterwards. But there's no-one else behind. And, and their defences and midfield is far worse than England's. Um, and this is a team we're talking about you know, got to the World Cup final last mm. time. Mm. And, you know, I think they they were fifth or sixth favourites for the tournament and England were far longer odds. And yet their defence is poor, their midfield is poor. Without Messi, they are no better than a, a Mexico or a, um, a, certainly a Portugal. And so there's just not, there's just not, they're just not a team at the moment. And yet it, there's nobody more worried than Argentinians about this team. We kind of assume it's Argentina, so of course they'll be fine because that's how it goes. But yeah, they are, they are seriously worried about, about Croatia. It comes back to the character we spoke about earlier and, and that will be what Argentina have to rely on mm. because, as, as Dan's rightly said, there are not enough things going for them on the field at the mm. moment. Yeah, you know, with character you know, comes resistance to criticism. Now, we talked about that in the England context. just want to dwell for a moment on the Spanish context. David de Gea, you know, the vitriol that, that he received after that, you know, admittedly an error mm. against, mm. against Portugal, that can't be deserved and it's no. got to be counterproductive, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. I, I mean, the political side of, of the Spanish game, you know, we've mm. we've all known about for years and years. And, and, you know, I mean, people people get upset about some of the newspaper coverage being parted. I mean, we get accused of supporting every team, but whoever 
such and such a supporter uh, likes anyway. But but I think in in Spain we have this incredible situation where you've got Marca that is so obviously affiliated with Real Madrid, mm-hmm. and then the Catalonian press uh, that that favours Barcelona. And and I, and it's for that reason that you can understand the the decision to send home Le Petitgris because he he would have been on a hiding to nothing the second it, it became clear um, that he was going to manage Real Madrid. So it, it is an issue, but but I, I think, you know, look, I, I know there's, there's, uh, De Gea is not affiliated to either uh, Real Madrid or Barcelona, but there's still... He is affiliated to Madrid as a as a city, and uh, you you do wonder how much of the vitriol that's come his way has a come from uh, the, the supporters in Catalonia, and b come from Manchester City fans as well. <laughs> yeah. He's having a bit of fun. I mean, the accusation that he plays better for Manchester United than Spain cannot really be doubted. He he's made a few mistakes for Spain, and he makes very rarely makes one for Manchester United. But to 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 translate and to warp that into uh, David De Gea is not good enough to start for Spain is is a nonsense. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, he is still the best goalkeeper in the world. Yeah, mm. yeah agree with that. Um, when we talked about Messi, we have to talk about Ronaldo. You know, <laughs> hat trick um, notwithstanding, um, this World Cup, out of all the players that we've seen so far, he is the one who's basically taken a team, taken a nation, and stuck it on his back and sprinted. Literally, I think. I think his, his, his speed was something like 30-odd mile, 34 kilometres an hour or something. How good is he and are we in danger of taking him for granted? Uh, how good is he? Brilliant. Uh, one of the greatest footballers the game has ever seen. Um, the debates about whether or not he is the greatest player ever, I just don't think we'll ever answer that because... You know, he wasn't playing at the time that Pele was playing or Maradona. The only person we can compare him to, you know, even the likes of Pushkas and Di Stefano, you know, we can't... We can't, you can't look it, back at generations, can But you? what we can do is, is look at him alongside Lionel Messi. And there is a very, very strong argument for, for Ronaldo. I know a lot of people think Messi is better, but there, there are equal numbers think that Ronaldo is, is ahead of him as well. And there's a very un, a strong argument for that because he does take Portugal. As you say, he puts the whole nation on his shoulders and, and he walks out as if to say, this is my stage. You billions out there watching... Watch what I can do, and and, and he, he never fails to do that when when his his country need him to do it, and also when his team need him to do it. Um, I, I just think he's he's a wonderful player, and I don't think we take him for granted. Actually, I think I think people now realise that the number of years he's done it for, the number of Ballon d'Ors he's won, uh, the number of international honours he's won, the number of domestic honours he's won. You just have to doff your cap to him. I think people maybe occasionally get a little bit irritated by uh, by the way he comes across, but I think as a as a football player, people just marvel at him. That, that free kick against Spain in the last—I mean, it, it was almost—I know Lionel Messi missed his penalty, but it was almost a penalty in that there was no—it was—it was like the end of a of a Nike advert. It was just everything <laughs> stopped, and it was yeah. just him, yeah, deep breaths, right. me and the ball, and there is nobody for. Forget quality. There is nobody that I've ever seen who I'd rather have over a ball in a clutch moment yeah, in a big yeah. game because he just has no self-doubt whatsoever. And, and again, it was him against Spain. And I'm not just talking about the 11 Spaniards on the field <laughs> yeah. at that moment. It was against the country that he plies his trade in, the country that he lives in. You know, this this was a man saying, I'm taking you all on. And, and, and he did it in spectacular yeah, he fashion. inevitably won. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure how long Ronaldo can keep carrying Portugal on his back. Now, sure, he's got an ego the size of Pluto, but let's enjoy his respect for his talent and his desperation to be the best. 
Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.